0: We are back. The book is Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine, and we're speaking with author Barry Strauss. Well, Hadrian leaves us with that wall in Britain. He left us with a mausoleum that's uh, still impressive, and I, I, I remember when I visited Rome as a boy, I was I was very impressed by that that structure of Roman concrete, the pantheon, which is still standing as a work of art. Um, he had no air, uh possibly in, maybe in part because he was Gay, But he again manages to pick a worthy successor, Antonius Pius, who in turn chooses another good emperor, which you wrote about in a chapter about, Marcus Aurelius.
1: Hadrian actually wanted to be succeeded by Marcus Aurelius, but he was too young. And so he chose Antoninus Pius as a stopgap, never imagining that Antoninus would rule for over 20 years. he would keep Marcus on a very tight leash over that period and did not allow him to leave Italy or to lead armies or to have any military experience. During Antoninus' period, it appeared a great prosperity for the empire. But when he dies and Marcus comes to the throne, all heck breaks loose. There are um, barbarians in the, in the west, uh, Germanic tribes in, along the Danube who invade and get as far as northern Italy. Meanwhile, in the east, the Parthians attacked the Roman frontiers as well. And so, although uh, Marcus Aurelius wanted to be what we would call today a domestic president, he spends most of his time as emperor on the frontiers, dealing, uh, fighting himself or sending others to fight on the frontier. He also has to deal with a civil war, uh, which fortunately for him is nipped in the bud when somebody assassinates the uh, the general who was leading the Civil War. By the way, Marcus Aurelius' own wife was working hand-in-glove with the rebel because she, her husband was sick, she thought he was going to die, and she thought this was the only way to protect her, protect her children. It was not good for her when that came out afterwards. <laughs> so Marcus Aurelius, today, a beloved Roman emperor, probably, possibly the only Roman emperor who is a truly good human being. He is the author of The Meditations, famous work of philosophy written during the the Empire, in which uh, Marcus Aurelius, largely a follower of the Stoics, uh, expresses his philosophy. The book is written uh, in in large part, if not entirely, while he's on the frontier in his tent, uh, and expresses Roman notions of duty and resignation, Stoic ideals, if you will. Uh, ironically, it's not written in Latin, it's written in Greek, which was the language par excellence of philosophy.
0: It is Marcus Aurelius who breaks with the tradition of picking a worthy successor. He decides to go with his son Commodus, a story familiar with those who saw the movie Gladiator. Uh, Things go south in Rome after that. Commodus gets murdered by a conspiracy, civil war erupts for four years. And in the year 197... um, Rome finally gets another emperor who earns a chapter in your book, Septimus Severus. He's not a name very familiar um, to people right. compared to the ones we've just been discussing. What can we say about Septimus Severus? He comes to
1: power in a civil war, so Commodus doesn't work out. And there's another period of civil war. He was a general on the Danube and marches on Rome, and after it's a rather bloody civil war, even more so than the that brought Vespasian to power. He is responsible for militarizing Roman government in a big way. Um, he probably wins the prize for killing more senators than anyone since Augustus. <laughs> and he uh, puts Rome under military occupation even more than his predecessors had. So beginning with Tiberius, Rome had a, there was a permanent imperial guard on the outskirts of the city, the Praetorian Guard. They had a permanent barracks. They were there to protect the emperors and to also have a chilling effect on anyone who is thinking of rebellion. Um, they all come from Italy. The Roman army now, by this period, very few Italians are serving in the Roman army anymore. The Roman army is mainly made up of men from the frontiers, particularly the Danube regions and the Balkan regions of the empire. Um, Septimius gets rid of the Italians, in the Praetorian guard. He puts these men from the outskirts of the empire, making the people of Rome feel that they're under occupation, and he also creates a legionary camp just outside of the city of Rome on the Appian Way, Uh, again, increasing the sense of the Romans that they are under military occupation. In a happier note, he represents, uh, you know, one of the things about the empire that's one of the secrets of success is that Rome has a relatively open elite. I mentioned that uh, Trajan came from Spain, Hadrian's family came from Spain. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, uh, excuse me, Septimius Severus's family comes from North Africa, from what is today Libya. We know that some of his ancestors were Italians who emigrated there, but we're not sure about his other ancestors, and there's some reason to think that they included people, people today we'd call people of color, people from North Africa, maybe maybe Berbers. It's not absolutely clear, the evidence is back and forth. What is certain is that he marries a woman from Syria, and not just any woman from Syria. He marries a woman from, the lo- from a local priestly family, so worshipping a god that was very foreign to Roman religion. Uh, and the dynasty he creates is one that's partly from North Africa, but perhaps of Italian descent, and partly from Syria. Uh, this is a big change in the government of Rome. If you think of the days when Rome, when the Roman Republic was uh, governed by a local nobility, and it very much reflects what's happening around the Roman Empire as the elites of the Empire, more and more of them are given Roman citizenship. Finally, under Septimius's son Caracalla, every free man in the Roman Empire becomes a Roman citizen. So uh, this is really remarkable moment. I think the ancients thought it's less remarkable than we do, because they saw it as partly a matter of being able to tax them better by making them Roman citizens, and partly because they found other ways to mark class difference within the empire. But for us in a modern country with, un- with mass democratic citizenship, it-, it really is a remarkable predecessor that the Romans should have done this. Septimius, I should also say, his family is a sterling example of the um, uh, soap operatic quality of the Roman ruling class. Uh, On his deathbed, he has two sons, and on his deathbed, he says to his sons, pay the soldiers, get along with each other, and don't worry about anyone else. (laughs) Uh, They do pay the soldiers, but they don't get along with each other. Um, They're supposed to be co-emperors, but the older son, has his younger brother murdered in the arms of their mother? It doesn't get any more grotesque than that. On the other hand, the mother, whose name is Julia Domna, has extraordinary powers, and she is one of her son's chief advisors and one of his chief ministers, uh, which is something that really no Roman woman had ever a power that no Roman woman had ever exercised before. They exercised power behind the scenes, but so openly, well, that was
0: something new. Yeah, you're describing some powerful women. You note in the book that uh, they were they sort of took over for a while and um, in yes. the wake of Caracalla. Evidently, one of them, I guess it's Domna, convinced the army that her grandson was the love child of the murdered emperor Caracalla, and this crazy Syrian uh, mystic, who we call Elagabalus, uh, becomes right. one of the weirdest rulers ever. He's not worth a lot of time, but can you tell us just a little bit about this strange episode?
1: The sources claim that you know, everything outrageous and scandalous that they could claim about Elagabalus. They claim uh, that he brought the worship of a Syrian god to Rome, who uh, was worshipped in processions that were somewhat uh, a cross between Hare Krishna and S&M parties, and also that he himself had a wild sex life. He was married to a vestal virgin, and he was married to a man and then there are other marriages as well um scholars have subjected a lot of this to skepticism and the figure that emerges nowadays is a little bit more conventional than the juicy stories um, uh-huh. that we sometimes get to get, get about this guy in any case he didn't last very long uh he is assassinated his uh, mother um is definitely the power behind the throne uh, while he is emperor and he is replaced by another member of his extended family Alexander Severus um, who is a boy emperor um, and rules for a while also with a very powerful mother um, and uh, he is ultimately assassinated and his death in 235 A.D opens a period of disaster and anarchy, 50 years roughly, in which the empire totters and looks at some point as if it's going to fall. There are invasions east and west. There's a new dynasty uh, ruling uh, Iran, the Sassanids, who are much more formidable and dangerous than the Parthians. There are a series of very serious Germanic invasions in the West, Uh, the Germans also have uh, reorganized, gotten their act together. They've learned from the Romans over the centuries, discipline and order. And they take what had originally been 50 tribes and reorganize them into a small group of tribes that are much more formidable and dangerous. On top of that, there are epidemics, there's runaway inflation, and there's huge political instability. this period as well, leading to a series of revolving door emperors. At one point, the emperor is defeated in battle by the Iranians, by the Sassanids. He is captured and dies in captivity. Amazing.
0: The book is Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine, and we're speaking with author Barry Strauss. Well, it takes, I gather, until about the year 284, uh, you you yeah. said in the book that like, they average an emperor every three years, something like that yeah. uh, at this point. Yeah. The emperor gets pulled together by a soldier from, I guess, what's today's Croatia, Diocletian. He Correct. pulls the emperor together, oddly enough, by dividing power and dividing the empire.
1: Yes. So he's a military man. If he's been to Rome in his life before he becomes emperor, it's only briefly he becomes emperor uh, in the east in what is today Turkey on a military campaign then fights a civil war. Uh, with the battle, I think in what is today Serbia, uh, and wins power. Visits Rome briefly to make friends with the Senate, um, but spends the rest of his life in the East. Uh, and he's determined to defeat Rome's enemies east and west, to defeat the Germanic tribes and to defeat the Sassanids, and he's successful in both of these things. And then he wants to reorganize the Empire to make sure that the disasters Rome. Happen will never happen again. So he comes up with a new tax structure that's much more onerous. He may or may not expand the military, that's not clear, but he definitely divides it into smaller units with more emphasis on cavalry. And probably most memorably, he divides the government of the empire. He, instead of there being one emperor, he has two emperors, and two co-emperors, because he says Rome's problems are too widespread, too far-flung, too complicated for any one person to rule. Now mind you, he insisted that he was still numero uno, and in the end, he would make the final decisions, but he had this new power structure. Behind the scenes, he tries to arrange things so that his son-in-law will be his successor. That doesn't work out, Um, but that is his plan. The other thing he does is he says the Romans will never have prosperity again until they win back back the peace of the gods. The gods are angry with the Romans, he says. Um, And he says the main reason they're angry is because there are atheists in the Roman Empire, people who don't believe in the Olympian gods. Now, one group of atheists, the Jews, were considered what might be called licensed atheists, uh, because they were a traditional group, the Romans didn't were willing to accept them. They would not accept the Christians as easily though, because they saw the Christians as novelty. They don't have tradition behind them. And so Diocletian begins the great persecution of Christianity, which does lead to many does cause many Christians to recant their faith, and it does lead to martyrs, it leads to the destruction of churches and Bibles. But in the end, it is a failure. In the end, uh, the Christian community holds strong, uh, and Diocletian is forced to admit defeat. He is the first and only emperor to step down from office and to go into retirement. He's built himself a retirement fortress on what is today the coast of Croatia in Split. If you ever had a chance to visit him, if you have,
0: I did. It's wonderful.
1: <laughs> it's really fantastic. Yeah. It's also where he puts his mausoleum. Interestingly, he doesn't see Rome as the capital anymore, and that's actually correct. Rome, is it's the sentimental capital, but it's no longer the effective capital of the empire. And Diocletian's plans to divide the empire, to leave it to his son-in-law, they all fall apart. And after yet another civil war, he's replaced by uh, a man who wins his way to control the entire empire as the one emperor again. And also, which would have made Diocletian roll in his grave, is probably dead, though he might be alive at this point still, we're not really sure. The new emperor is a Christian, the opposite of what Diocletian had in mind. He is, of course, Constantine, and he proclaims toleration of Christianity in the western part of the empire, toleration of all religions, in the western part of the empire, when he conquers Rome in 312, one of the most decisive battles in history, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. Um, he then goes on in 324 to add the eastern part of the empire to his portfolio as well. There he's not as tolerant to pagans as he was in the, in the west. Uh, he doesn't make Christianity the official religion of the empire, but he promotes it, fosters it, spreads it, patronizes it, And um, by the time Constantine is done, the empire is well on its way to becoming a Christian empire. He also creates a dynasty, so he has sons to succeed him, to continue the family's uh, tradition, the family's power, the family's Christianity. He um, brands what the Romans called uh, Syria-Palestina, Palestine, if you will, he brands it as the Holy Land. Um, He sends his mother, St. Helena. Uh, to find uh, the trace where Jesus walked, and to find relics of the Holy Land, becomes the Holy Land. And momentously, he creates a new capital for Rome um, to share power with the West. Uh, it's on the site of the old Greek city of Byzantium. Here he names it Constantine City, Constantinopolis, Constantinople. It uh, eventually comes to be thought of as a new Rome. It's not clear that... Constantine himself is thinking of it as a new Rome, Um, and it's a Christian city. Uh, There's still some pagan there, but it is unlike Rome, it is a largely Christian city. And uh, Constantine himself never ruled from Rome. When he was ruling the Western Empire, he ruled it primarily from the city of Trier in Germany, where he had grown up. And many of the later emperors ruled Italy from Milan— Or from Ravenna, rarely if ever from Rome, while in the East the Empire is ruled from Constantine's great new city, Constantinople, the real new city of destiny.
0: Well the Roman Empire did decline and fall, although it did did. survive on in a in a Greek version in in Byzantium, Constantinople for another really a thousand years. I do want to ask you, people know the, what goes up must come down. They look at what, what right. may happen to America one day. Um, what, right. what things do you think that we must look at as the most important to avoid to escape the downfall that Rome had? Uh, I note know, I know that when I say that, incompetent leadership is a topic uh, much discussed in contemporary America.
1: Well, I'll point to a couple of other things. Uh, first of all, uh, in order to survive, you have to be flexible and be willing to change. So I think one of the things that's so impressive about the Romans is that while maintaining some of their core values, they were willing to make enormous amounts of change. For instance, the ruling class was had very little in common. In the later empire, the ruling class had very little in common with the ruling class of the early empire. It's, Italians had very little to do with, uh, with the Roman government, uh, which is an enormous change. They were flexible, and they were willing to open themselves to newcomers and to outsiders. So I think that's one thing that's important, while, of course, maintaining Latin and maintaining Roman law and many fundamental Roman values. Um, A second thing, and this is something where I think the Romans were not successful, is um, it's very important not to get complacent. I think what happened to the Romans in, in, in terms of their collapse in the West is They were spending a lot of money on the military, and they were convinced that they were capable of meeting any threat that would face them. They underestimated the changes among the Germans and the degree to which their longtime enemies had recouped, had reorganized. They were much more of a threat to the Roman Empire by the 5th century B.C. than they had been, say, in the 1st century A.D. And if the Romans had wanted to defeat the Germans, I think they would have had to make an enormous effort. Um, I think they would have had to pay many more taxes, and many more men would have had to be in military service. Um, So I guess the lessons for us Americans is, first of all, make change your friend. Uh, Change is going to happen, and uh, new people are going to happen, but you, you need to embrace them while maintaining the core of what's good about society, but also don't be complacent about uh, what's out there over the frontiers, and don't think just because, well, it looks like we're so strong at home that we can never be defeated. In fact, as you said, everything declines. Anyone can be defeated, and I think uh, as Americans, we need to be very attentive to challenges from abroad and to think about the smart and most effective ways of, of dealing with them.
0: I do want to ask you before we close today, as we're getting near the end, uh, to review what ways we might still think of ourselves as the Roman Empire reborn. What would you pick if you were asked to choose
1: things? Well, like the Romans, we we try to um, uh, follow a rule of law. Uh, We are a very large society. I mean, the Romans have this mass citizenship, and we have mass citizenship as well. Um, The Romans were openly an empire. Um, Empire is a dirty word nowadays, and we wouldn't use it. But it remains a fact that Americans uh, conquered the continent. They took it from its previous inhabitants. America has spread its power around the world. So uh, we see ourselves as a global power. The Romans had a very active notion of peace. The Romans did not believe that peace just happens. The Romans believed that you could only have peace actively winning it and maintaining it, the famous Pax Romana. I think we as Americans basically believe the same thing, that we don't always admit it, that uh, in order for the world to be at peace, uh, we have to to win that peace and we have to maintain that peace. It's not going to happen if we just kick back. So in that sense, we're Romans as well. Um, it's also the case that the founders of the United States were looking more to the Roman Republic than to the Roman Empire for their models. So they saw the Republic as a mixed regime, as a free society, not a monarchy, a republic, government by the people. But they didn't see it as a democracy. Um, they saw it as one in which uh, the rich and the poor, ordinary people and wealthy people would give and take um, meet in the public square, argue, disagree, and come to um, some kind of agreement about um, uh, what political life uh, would be. So in that sense, sorry, so in that sense, we're not like the Roman Empire. Uh, We're more like the Roman Republic. Some other ways, good and bad, so good, Uh, the United States is still fundamentally a Christian country. Of course, we have no established religion, um, and there's no requirement for anyone to be Christian, but it's largely a Christian culture that's really left its stamp on the U.S., and Christianity comes from the Roman Empire. Yeah. Um, it's changed, but that is where it, uh, where it originates. Um, sometimes my students have a lot of trouble wrapping their mind around that, and I sometimes say to them, what's the most popular book today that was written during the Roman Empire? And they almost never say the New Testament. Romans, um, bread and circuses. <laughs> uh, they're that part of the empire, which I'm afraid is part of our culture today. It's all too easy for us to entertain ourselves to death, as a book some well, a while back called itself, uh, or amuse ourselves to death, I think the book was called. Um, we are like the Romans in that sense as well. We like spectacles. We don't kill our gladiators anymore, we let them live, but we sure do like having them get roughed up. That's another way in which we like the Romans.
0: I, I've heard it argued that uh, Constantine is the third most uh, important figure in the history of Christianity after uh, Jesus himself and St. Paul. You could certainly make that case.
1: Certainly in ancient Christianity, that's,
0: that's true. Well, final question that I have for you, which is probably a little unfair, uh, but but you have written about uh, Ten Caesars, um, right. and, and there's, there's so many remarkable stories, remarkable individuals. Do you have a favorite? Is there a choice among them that you think is the most remarkable, the most singular individual? Or, or I guess the question is, who's your favorite?
1: In many ways, it's hard to beat Augustus, uh, because he was just so clever, so Machiavellian, so bad, and yet also so good, because he establishes this peace. Also, it's very hard to beat the founder, because the founder is the person with vision. Um, Hadrian is awfully interesting, uh, because he's such a combination of light and darkness, of sunshine and shadow, uh, and because he also has a very grand vision. So those are two of my favorites, and it's hard not to be immensely impressed by Constantine, because of what he does. As a sentimental favorite, well, Marcus Aurelius and the meditation. (laughs) He's not as good an emperor as he is a philosopher, but it's a
0: wonderful book. (laughs) Well, the book is Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine. I do want to note for our listeners, we've we've scarcely scratched the surface of so many tales of uh, of ancient Rome, and I I hope that all all of our dear listeners will go out and secure a copy uh, uh, to learn more. Uh, We think they should learn more. And before you go, I want you to plug your uh, podcast, which I I know are out there, and I'm sure many listeners are going to want to go to it to hear
1: more there. I have a podcast I'm very excited about. I started it um, uh, less than a year ago. It's called Antiquitas, Leaders and Legends of the Ancient World. And in the first season, I talk about eight great uh, ancient uh, leaders, from the mythical Achilles and Helen of Troy down to Julius Caesar. Uh, in the second season, a shorter season, I talked about the uh, assassination of Julius Caesar and his consequences. And I'm about to start recording a third season on Great Ancient Battles. The podcast is, it's is available on iTunes and all major platforms. It's been very popular. I've gotten wonderful feedback on it, and uh, I encourage you all to listen to it.
0: And I do note as we close that we are recording this in July, named after Julius Caesar. And, of course, next (laughs) month uh, Augustus took a look at that and said, I want a month, too. That's why August is named after him. Yes. Barry Strauss, I want to thank you so much for speaking with us.
1: You're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: That pretty much does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. At this point, we're going to commence a summer hiatus, but we expect to be speaking to you again sometime around Labor Day. And, you know, we may slip on a original show in between now and then, but if we don't, have a good summer. Hot town, summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirty, and gritty.